I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Jim Haggard. Hello, Jim, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, now, you're a paleontologist with the Geological Survey of Canada, right? Uh, that, that's correct, Daniel, and, and thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk uh, with you about what it is I do because it's so so exciting to me. And uh, yes, as a paleontologist with the Geological Survey of Canada, I use fossils to help solve geological problems. It's kind of like a dream job for me because ever since I was an undergraduate and first started collecting fossils as part of my coursework, uh, I kind of uh, fell in love with the uh, when I realized that you could put these fossils to work to help understand uh, complex geological issues. So that's why I'm employed by the Geological Survey of Canada. Uh, it's not just because the federal government uh, has an, a love of fossils and wants um, wants me to just describe them, but they want me to put them to work and uh, to help resolve geological issues. I'm sure they do love fossils just like the rest of us, but um, I'm curious, what are some of these problems that you're solving? Well, uh, because because we know that uh, fossil life forms uh, lived at certain periods of geological time, certain periods in Earth's history, and then they went extinct, right? So typically a, a species evolves uh, from some sort of stock ancestor, and then uh, it will persist for a certain period of time in Earth's history, maybe a quarter million years, maybe 10 million years. Uh, and then it will go, typically goes extinct. And uh, because we know that then these, these fossil animals lived in specific periods of geological time, whenever we find these, these fossils in the rock records, and I'm talking about sedimentary rocks primarily, uh, then we know that those rocks had to have been deposited at that period of time. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty elegant little argument, really. And so certain fossils are always found at the bottom of a big, thick pile of rocks, and those are considered the oldest fossils. And other fossils are typically found at the top of the column of, of uh, thickness of rocks, and those are, are the earliest uh, or, or youngest fossils. And then we have a whole bunch of fossils in between, you know, which can be used to subdivide the geological time scale. So that's what I do. I basically take, I study the fossils that are found in Canada. I figure out their relationship with the rocks and the relationship with other fossil assemblages. And uh, are they younger or are they older? And then for the best of those uh, fossil assemblages, we construct time intervals that then are used as uh, uh, essentially the time frame for correlating all geological deposits of the country. And um, so this is useful for a variety of purposes. Um, when we're constructing geological maps of the countryside, we need to know the ages of the rocks in addition to the types of rocks they are. And so the fossils help us provide, you know, constrain those arguments. And these these maps then are used by a variety of people in a variety of uh, different uh, objectives. Uh, the, the mineral industry will use maps to hunt, help hunt for minerals. 
the oil and gas industry will use our geological maps to help uh, define uh, prospective oil and gas zones. Um, forestry companies will use our maps to help understand the bedrock that underlies the forest and, and how that might affect their road building. Um, First Nations people uh, will use our maps to better understand the resources that uh, that that may underlie or uh, be contained in their in their territories. So, yeah, a, quite a variety of different um, applications that uh, these um, these maps are useful for. That's really fascinating. So, different time periods will produce different underground resources, right? Uh, in in a sense, that's that's correct. Um, I don't, uh, for instance, if you look at the Cretaceous time period, the one I'm most familiar with, and this is the period of time from about 145 to 65 million years ago, um, the world was a much different place then than it is today. There was no, uh, as far as we know, there was really no ice on the on the surface of the globe. I mean, today we have the North Pole and the South Pole, you know, um, Antarctica and and the North Polar regions are occupied by ice uh, year-round, and there's lots of continental glaciation, uh, ice caps in British Columbia and Alaska and Greenland, etc. And none of that existed in the Cretaceous because it was a much warmer climate. And as a result, you had uh, much more widespread forests um, established all around the globe. I mean, there were even forests in the Arctic and Antarctic regions at that time. Um, and so these forests eventually decayed and formed huge coastal swamps, and uh, those uh, decayed remains of the forest then accumulated as extensive coal deposits. And for the last 200 years, you know, essentially uh, the world has uh, uh, had an industrial revolution that was fueled initially by those coal deposits. And in some parts of the world, those uh, coal is still a very uh, significant form of energy, such as in China. So, yeah, it's certainly... Uh, a, a, a very um, the distribution of resources that we can utilize in such a way uh, are somewhat hap haphazard around the globe and through geological time. But that's all the more reason we need the fossils to help us constrain where we might be able to look for these resources. So it really is literally fossil fuels. Oh, for sure, and that's that's why the name uh, comes from it because these are materials that essentially. Um, uh, were biological at one time. Uh, coal essentially comes from plant remains. And then a lot of petroleum, hydrocarbon, oil, if you will, uh, comes from um, uh, the remains of microscopic animals. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting biologically based system that we're, uh, that we're burning through today. Fascinating. And do we have a lot of these Cretaceous deposits here in BC? Uh, yes, we do. In fact, uh, northeast BC, where all of the uh, uh, significant coal and uh, natural gas deposits are uh, based or focused, uh, is extensive. And that's part of a uh, – northeast BC is part of a, a geological succession in North America that we call the Foreland Basin or the Western Canada Sedimentary Basin. And essentially, these are Cretaceous rocks – uh, a band of Cretaceous rocks that runs from the Arctic all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, so they essentially these rocks were deposited uh, within uh, or along the margins of a vast inland sea that that covered the central part of North America running from the Gulf of Mexico up to the Arctic. So think of Calgary today being underwater. And when I say underwater, I don't mean a lake, I mean the ocean. 
So it was a quite a bit different world then. And, and then along the margins of this uh, inland sea is where these coastal um, swamps uh, accumulated. Now, in, on the more westerly parts of British Columbia, we, uh, that part of uh, the province is, is characterized by um, a much, much greater extent of uh, what we call structural deformation. So there's been a lot of, because it's on the leading edge of the continent, there's been a lot of um, tension between the western margin of North America, i.e. Canada, uh, and the Pacific Ocean Plate with a lot of uh, interactions between the two as the Pacific Plate moved eastward and pushed up against the continental margin of North America. And uh, today we have a few um, uh, volcanoes in, uh, in BC and, and then go, going down into the Cascade Arc of, uh, of uh, Washington State and Oregon uh, that are uh, that are essentially related to that tectonic uh, interaction between the Pacific Plate and the North American Plate. And the same thing uh, existed in Cretaceous time. All of the granite rocks that characterize the coast mountains of British Columbia from Vancouver all the way up actually to the Alaska border uh, are the remnants of the roots of, uh, of ancient volcanoes in Cretaceous time and Jurassic uh, before the Cretaceous. Uh, and these these volcanoes were essentially forming a barrier between the continental interior on the east and the open Pacific uh, uh, Ocean on the west. <laughs> I always like to say that living here in Vancouver, we're basically living on top of a global car crash with the two pieces of Earth's surface crashing into each other. Well, some people, uh, one, one of my colleagues has uh, referred to it as the, uh, uh, the great uh, Alaskan train wreck. So, uh, uh, you know, the, the juxtaposition of, uh, of uh, small geological terrains or blocks of crust that have been jostled and, and tossed about uh, and, and rammed up against each other. So, yeah, that's a very good analogy, a, a car wreck or a, a train wreck. So, Jim, how did you get into this line of work? Uh, where did you go to school? Yeah, I had a really uh, interesting uh, uh, educational system. I, I, I came from the U.S. I was born in New York City and then lived in the southern U.S., uh, many different places when I was a kid. And, and when I uh, graduated from high school in Arizona, I decided to go uh, to Arizona, uh, the University of Arizona down in Tucson. And, and initially, I had uh, dreams of being an astronomer. Uh, and so, you know, Tucson sounded great because uh, it's got one of the best uh, astronomy programs in the world. But I learned within about three days that I was not cut out to be an astronomer because, uh, you know, in the first three days we were doing differential equations. And I hadn't even gotten that in, in high school. So I was just, uh, I was way, way um, uh, over my head there. And so I, I withdrew from the astronomy program quite quickly and then switched into French, believe it or not, because I'd had a French background uh, uh, in high school, learned a lot of French there. Um, that didn't work out either. So then I switched to anthropology, uh, which I thought was really cool, in particular the, the part about uh, physical anthropology, the evolution of hominids or, or human beings. And uh, you can see I was starting to understand my paleontological uh, affections at that time. So, um, um, but eventually parts of anthropology became uh, uh, a disinterest to me. So I had, I fortunately took a course in earth history and uh, the history of life on earth. And that 
set me on my course because we learned the importance of fossils there. And I also learned, you know, the vast uh, array of uh, geological landscapes that have come and gone on the surface of the earth through geological time and how the, how the fossil life helps us understand how that uh, how those landscapes evolved and uh, and disappeared. So, yeah, that's how it uh, that's how it came about. And, uh, you know, I have a number of people in the uh, uh, University of Arizona that uh, that inspired me into in this program. And, and I have to give them full credit, you know, for for that. It was a long time ago now, but uh, still, you know, it's, it's important to recognize the influences that you have on your life. Absolutely. And then how did you end up with the Geological Survey of Canada? Yeah, it's a long ways away, and uh, I never would have expected it to happen the way it did. But um, uh, after I did my undergraduate uh, in, in Arizona, then I went to uh, uh, the University of California in Davis, California, which is near Sacramento, uh, partway between Sacramento and, and Berkeley. And uh, I did my master's there on a specialized topic of paleontology called ammonite. Uh, biostratigraphy, and um, uh, so I was doing that work, and I got, my, you know, as, as quite often happens in uh, when you're doing graduate-level research, you kind of get squirreled away into an area of research that no one else is working on, and um, that was my case. I was essentially the only person in North America outside of my supervisor who was working on these particular ammonites, Cretaceous fossils, and um, this attracted the attention of uh, of a paleontologist at the Geological Survey of Canada named George Jaleski, who was my predecessor. And Jaleski found out I was doing this work, and he came down and we did some field, field work in California. I didn't realize that he was checking me out as a possible candidate to replace him, um, but that's indeed what happened. So when I finished my graduate work, I went and did a postdoc in Ottawa working with, with George, and Kind of the rest is history. Ammonites are always a really popular uh, fossil to study, uh, being the ancestors of octopi and squid. Um, although I have heard that there is quite the rivalry between ammonite uh, paleontologists uh, from the Jurassic era versus from the Cretaceous era. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, it's, um, you know, we we tend to, uh, uh, we all all are jealous of our turf, you know, and uh, we, uh, we like to uh, kind of be the first ones to find the fossils in a particular area because, of course, you're going to get the best, right? And uh, uh, the ones that, are, uh, that nobody has seen before but are right there on the surface. And um, so uh, the Jurassic people, uh, have a, they do have their own set of ammonites, you know, of course, because these ammonites lived in, in an older period of geological time. But I have to say that the Cretaceous ammonites uh, have it hands down over the Jurassic ones. And that's because they have all these bizarre morphologies that we call uh, uh, the heteromorphs. And, and the Jurassic ammonites are pretty plain and simple. Um, of course, you talk to a Jurassic specialist and, and he or she would argue with me all day long, but, but they really have no way uh, to claim any rights on the heteromorphs. And these are bizarre morphologies that evolved towards the end of the, uh, the Ammonites' uh, uh, career in the later part of the Cretaceous, things like uh, big corkscrew-shaped shells and um, straight shells and uh, in, in addition to the standard logarithmic spiral shells. So, yeah, I think that the Cretaceous definitely has it hands down over the Jurassic, but, 
but certainly even in the Jurassic, the uh, the fossil species that have been recognized uh, display the same rapid evolutionary uh, 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 divergence from their ancestors and short um, re uh, geological ranges. In other words, they went extinct uh, very soon after appearing in the uh, in the Earth's uh, oceans. And so. As for the Cretaceous ammonites, the Jurassic ammonites are also very superb uh, time indicators. Well, you've got me convinced, but I suspect that a rumble is never too far off. Uh, I'm curious, what are you researching right now? Well, right now I'm uh, working on uh, two kind of broad areas of research. One is for the last number of years I've been working up in northeast Nunavut uh, on the uh, north northwest margin of Baffin Bay. And uh, so there's a, su a succession of rocks there that are found on land uh, on, on Baffin Island and, and a place called Violet Island. And these are uh, rocks of Cretaceous to um, Paleocene age. So about, uh, about in, they range in age from about 90 to uh, uh, 40, 45 million years old. And uh, they're also, ex we assume they ex extend into the um, under- sea areas of Baffin Bay too and, and essentially across to the Greenland side of Baffin Bay. Um, so, But to understand those rocks in the offshore region we're looking at the the uh, the rocks in the on-land region and that's my particular interest. I'm not that interested in what's in the offshore. But uh, you know as I've been talking about earlier you know uh, about coal deposits and whatnot and and ammonites these rocks are, uh, are rich in coal deposits locally and um, not too many ammonites, unfortunately. That's why I originally took the project on was to see if I could find uh, an ammonite assemblages that, that far up in the Arctic. But uh, one of the things that, that has come out of it all was uh, the find of a, of a plesiosaur uh, fossil a number of years ago. And plesiosaur is a marine reptile. So think of the marine reptiles as kind of being equivalent to the dinosaurs of the time, but in the ocean. And uh, so uh, you've probably seen pictures of these marine reptiles before, plesiosaurs, elasmosaurs. Essentially, they look like giant uh, porpoises with long necks uh, or uh, maybe a, a look like a whale with, a, with an extended snout. And uh, so we found one of these uh, in 2017 uh, on Violet Island, and um, it was quite exciting uh, to find this in the rock. It's in an extremely remote area, surrounded by giant glaciers and uh, typically uh, characterized by pretty bad weather. So um, I'm hoping to get back there and uh, pull that thing out of the, out of the, uh, out of the ground. Um, so that's one thing I've been working on recently. And then the other uh, uh, aspect of research that kind of keeps me interested is, is on the other coast, uh, here, right here in B.C., and... Um, I look at the rocks that are found on Vancouver Island, southeastern Vancouver Island, and a little bit over here on the mainland, and uh, look at the fossil assemblages there in order to use those fossil assemblages to uh, help refine this time scale that I've been referring to. And uh, these rocks on southeast Vancouver Island are are wonderful laboratory for that purpose because they uh, uh, there are many different locations you can go to and see the same succession of rocks by walking down the creeks. 
and so you can go eat down each creek and collect the, the fossils that are there and then compare to the creek uh, adjacent and even farther away and then work up the succession of fossils that you find there. So then you can really put together a nicely refined time scale. And that time scale then, based on fossils, can be used anywhere we have such fossils uh, in Canada or elsewhere around the world. So those are kind of the two, two topics that are keeping me interested right now. That's really cool. Uh, it, I always forget that, you know, the world is not uh, how it's always been, and it's constantly changing. And it just really boggles the mind that you're finding evidence of such a different ecosystem in our modern Arctic. Oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, this is one of the things that I've, I've worked with the local community up there, the uh, Inuit community in Pond Inlet, uh, I've I've wa- worked with them about you know trying to establish uh, a uh, a museum level exhibit for uh, the community. Uh, it turns out that there's a, a national park, Sermolik uh, National Park, uh, which is uh, in that right in that area. Most of Violet Island is within the park. It's also a huge bird sanctuary, and uh, so we had to get special permits, obviously from from both the Inuit as well as Parks Canada to, to go in and collect fossils uh, from Violet Island. But I've been working with the local community to get them fired up to uh, put together an exhibit which would show the contrast in the environment that, uh, that we have between the Cretaceous period when it was so warm, even in the Arctic, and today's today's uh, climate where it's so cold in the Arctic and and I think it would make a fascinating display and I mean the people local people want want to see it happen too it's just trying to find the money to to bring it all together so uh, yeah think of think of an ocean up there with uh, instead of uh, beluga whales it has um, uh, um, and and narwhals it would have plesiosaurs and elasmosaurs and ammonites and uh, on land, instead of having ice, you know, you'd have uh, tropical forests. So quite a quite a contrast in environment. And dinosaur remains. I mean, we have dinosaurs up there as well, at uh, you know latitude seventy five degrees north. Oh wow, a very different Arctic than what we're familiar with today. I'm really glad you mentioned your field work. Uh, one of my favorite parts of these interviews is when scientists share their uh, wacky field stories. It sounds like an amazing and crazy place. Um, do you have any fun field stories you'd care to share? Oh, who doesn't? For sure. Yeah, let's see. Um, well, you know, I've had, I've had many different field opportunities, and that's like the best part of doing my job is going out in the field and, and uh, with your colleagues, with your friends, and being able to do the geological and paleontological uh, work that uh, forms uh, your, your research. And... Uh, I remember, I mean, <laughs> working in Canada, uh, you know, you get a lot of opportunities to be in very remote areas. And uh, I, uh, one of my early projects in the geological survey was producing a, a geological map of what was called at that time uh, Queen Charlotte Islands, but we now uh, uh, call it Haida Gwaii, so the archipelago up uh, off the coast of BC, north of Vancouver Island. And uh, there's a lot of remote country on Haida Gwaii. And at one point, I was uh, on the West Coast, and I did a 10-day backpack trip um, going down the coast from the northwest uh, point for about 75 miles to the south. 
and uh, collecting uh, fossils and looking at the geology. And it's a tremendously remote area. Um, you know, you're open on the Pacific coast there. There's nothing between you and the Japanese islands. And the sea is coming in and crashing in, in tremendous uh, swells and surf. It's, it's very wild and, uh, and remote. And uh, so I was actually by myself at that time. We, we, we're not allowed to do that anymore. We have, we're supposed to have partners when we, when we traverse. But I did this 10-day trip. And at one point, about midway through, I was uh, um, working along the coast, and uh, the tide was way out. Now, you have to understand in Haida Gwaii, the tidal range is like 10 meters. It's huge. It's one of the larger places uh, on the world, on the earth. And, uh, um, you, you know, you have to be careful that you don't get caught out, out on the inner tidal when the tide starts coming in, right? So I was out on one of these uh, tidal, tidal platforms, uh, maybe about half a kilometer away from shore, and, you know, just pounding the rocks, uh, looking for fossils, and they, taking measurements on the rocks. And it was late in the afternoon. And I look around, and, oh, the tide's coming in. I better, I better skedaddle for the shore. And I look up, and there's uh, a huge black bear right on the beach. And he's pawing through the detritus on the beach, you know. I, I thought, uh-oh, you know, I can't, can't go running in there now. It, uh, it, it, I don't know what's, what, he's gonna, what it's going to do to the bear. So, you know, I, I waited a few minutes, and then the tide comes up a little bit more. The bear didn't seem to be going anywhere. And uh, so eventually I had to start screaming, you know, yelling at the top of my lungs to try and scare this fellow away because that water was getting awfully close. <laughs> and uh, I don't think he was particularly nervous about my presence. And he eventually, or she, trundled off into the forest there, and I was able to skedaddle up onto the shoreline just in time to stay dry. So it was a, it was kind of an un, a, you know nerve-wracking half an hour while I sat there and uh, kind of tried to outweigh that bear. <laughs> I've heard so many of these field stories that revolve around bears. Um, yeah, it seems like you, it doesn't count as field work if you haven't run into a bear in uh, the Canadian backwoods. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you another story about bears um, that was much more terrifying, actually. And I, I went to Sakhalin Island in uh, eastern Russia in uh, around 19, around 2000. And uh, I actually went with my wife, and uh, we were recently engaged at the time. We had no idea what we were getting into. And, and uh, we were there with a couple of Japanese colleagues and a couple of Russian colleagues. And uh, we were taking a Russian army truck into the wilderness of Sakhalin Island. And uh, going up these creeks, looking for fossils and describing the geology. And at one point, we're walking along the creek bank, and you pushing through these big ferns. It's very uh, temperate uh, uh, rainforest there, kind of similar to to western BC, um, but even milder. And uh, we're pushing through these big fern ferns, and there was the most, the hugest grizzly bear track I'd ever seen in my life right there on the on the ground in front of us so the the bear was walking the same trail we were and uh, um, that and then we came around the corner and there was a huge pile of salmon carcasses and when I say a pile I mean think of it about six feet tall and uh, 20 feet in diameter now these weren't salmon carcasses produced by the bears of course the bears would you know eat the whole salmon um, no, these carcasses, it turns out, were uh, collected by 
the local mafia, and uh, they were gutting the salmon and then taking out the roe and passing it off as mock caviar, and it was being distributed around Russia uh, as mock caviar. And so they would just gut the salmon, take the roe, and then throw the, the remains of the fish on the pile. And, of course, the bears were having a field day with it. And uh, uh, it was a very interesting experience. And at one point during that uh, 10 days, uh, these, uh, these mafia fellows came into our camp uh, uh, with their guns all bristling and uh, started screaming at our Russian hosts, and we didn't know if we were going to be have our throats slit or whatever, but it turns out they just wanted to learn how to use the defrost, def, defroster uh, in their Toyota cars that they didn't have any instruction manuals for. <laughs> What's scarier, uh, coming across the grizzly face-to-face or having the mafia invade your camp? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a toss-up for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, uh, what do you consider to be the best part of your work? Well, I have to say it's what I've been describing, you know, the research, getting outdoors and um, uh, learning about the geology, uh, looking for the fossils. I mean, it's really exciting, Daniel, when you find a fossil that in the field and you realize that it's the key to unlocking a geological problem, right? Um, uh, and, you know, you realize, oh, this fossil makes the story complete. I understand now how the puzzle goes together. And uh, it's really a satisfying um, uh, position to be in. And then, of course, you bring these ma- these materials back from the field and, and you spend most of your winter writing up the results, you know, writing papers for publication describing the new fossils or preparing geological maps um, based on the, the knowledge you've gained from the fossils. And, uh, and that's very rewarding, too, when the, when the paper finally comes out and you realize you've made a contribution uh, to the to the international uh, level uh, of uh, research information on on the topic, so that's uh, that's that's pretty much it. Um, and of course, the the relationships you make with the people you work with. I mean, I have some colleagues that I've been doing fieldwork with for for almost thirty years, and uh, you know, we really uh, we really understand each other's foibles and. We just really look forward to uh, interacting with each other, you know, during the course of the summer or maybe five years from now or whatever. So, you know, these friendships uh, really uh, can be lifelong. And and I think because you're sharing such a neat uh, understanding of Earth history, you know, you really uh, have uh, uh, developed really strong bonds with with these people. (laughs) Yeah, 30 years. Uh, That's the length of many marriages. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And uh so you're kind of catching me sometime before I retire here, but uh, nothing, nothing, uh, you know, nothing on the horizon. But uh, it's it's out there uh, at some point. I'm not sure when. Now, over 30 years, I'm sure you've come across some things that you don't enjoy quite as much. Uh, so I'm curious, what are some of the downsides of your work? The uh, worst or most most challenging aspects of your job? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you another field story. I mean, there's something that, that um, this field story is very. Uh, I think it's very informative, and it was, but it was kind of scary at the time, in a different in a different way from that that uh, Russian bear story. And and uh, I I was working up in the Bella Coola area of uh, of Western BC, and uh, we're you know Bella Coola is like the Switzerland of uh, of of British Columbia. It's a gorgeous. Uh, uh, countryside with huge mountains and and big ice fields and 
so much of it's above timberline. And, and so I was doing a traverse with a student assistant and we had been dropped off uh, by helicopter in the morning. And it was a beautiful sunny morning when the helicopter dropped our, our, our gear for our camp in this, in this bowl on the side of a, of a mountain, a uh, cirque essentially. And uh, we dropped the gear and I put an X on the map. I, I always carry a paper map instead of, uh, uh, you know, something in my phone or whatever. I always have a, a paper map with me, and I put an X on the map where uh, where we were, right? And then I asked, uh, as we flew away from the site to uh, be dropped off to, to start our traverse, I asked the helicopter pilot what were the coordinates of the site where he dropped our camp gear. And so he, he rattled off some coordinates, and I wrote those down in my in my notebook, right? And so um, I, I went out, and my student and I got dropped off on a ridge about six or eight kilometers away, and the idea was we were going to walk the ridge to our camp, and then uh, the next day we'd sp spend the night at that camp, and then the next day we'd do another traverse, and a few days of that, and then we'd get picked up again by the helicopter. Well, during the course of this first day, the weather started to deteriorate. You know, for, slowly the clouds came in, the sun disappeared, got cold, and by like four o'clock in the afternoon, it was coming down pretty uh, heavy sleet, and uh, you know we were getting pretty damp. But we knew we we had our gear, right? We knew we had our camp, so we weren't too worried. But the thing is, I was going using my GPS to try and get to the coordinates that the helicopter pilot had told me, and I'm thinking this is all wrong here. This cannot be right. I'm looking at my map, and I said that's where I put the X on the map. It was over there. And so, you know, we walked to the coordinates and there's nothing there. And I knew that I had been given the wrong information. And so fortunately, this is in the era of sat phones and satellite phones. And I was able to get on the phone and call into the helicopter base. And the pilot, he was initially miffed because he thought I had, I had screwed up something. And he came and picked us up and I had to call him in using my radio to tell him where we were and uh and then i said you know this is not where we dropped our gear it was over there and so i was able to show him where our gear had been dropped and we flew over there and and uh actually picked it up and went back to base because by that time the storm had become very intense but it was a lesson to me to always be aware of where you are don't count on the electronic information to be your guide because it's not foolproof. It's much better to have, uh, it, of course, it's great to have the electronic uh, uh, information and the, and the gadgets to help you know where you are. And we use those all the time, but you always got to have a backup and understand where you are in, in an intuitive sense, particularly in the mountains. So that was a very scary afternoon because I felt like uh, uh, I had this student in my, uh, uh, you know, in my care. And if things didn't, work out, you know, we could potentially have been in a very difficult situation with exposure and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was scary and unnerving, um, but still a part of the field work. And so now, you know, you can tell the stories about it and it kind of sounds uh, glorious and whatnot. But uh, um, you mentioned, though, what's the, you know, some of the drags in my job. And I do have to say there are some drags. I probably don't, probably don't want my boss to hear this, but uh, 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 the administration, and management in our office is uh, is a big time sink, and it has gotten increasingly complex over the years. 
you know, you have more and more forms to fill out to do anything. And uh, it's kind of interesting because when I see a young scientist coming into our office, um, they don't know how easy it used to be to do things. And they're kind of, they've kind of grown up in the era of, uh, of uh, overburden, administrative overburden. And, uh, and so they're used to it and, and they don't see it as a, um, as a problem as, as I do. But I certainly uh, I recognize that everybody's uh, research program is, is impacted negatively by you know, the, the burden of administrative work that's, that's, that's heaped on us these days. And that would be the thing I find the most uh, uh, you know, unfortunate about my position is that it's much, much harder to get any research done today than it was 25 years ago. Well, hopefully if they grow up with it, uh, they'll be used to it and they won't really understand what they're missing out on. Well, that's what I have to tell myself. You know, they're, they're happy to have a job and, uh, and uh, when I can understand that because when I first came to Canada and my job, I was, I was uh, you know, it was, it was glorious and it still is glorious. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't trade my job for anything. But uh, I just wish the younger people could be uh, more e- efficient, right, and, and, and be able to produce more science. Uh, and that's that's what's uh, that's that's my particular goal is to try and make uh, uh, life for them in in our research organization uh, as simple as possible so that they can maximize their scientific productivity. Uh, now I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that impacted your studies or career in any way? No, no. I have to say that I'm I'm a fan, fairly standard fellow, and I I don't have any you know particular uh, uh, affiliations that uh, uh, have impacted my career uh, you know in any way. I mean, I you know I I guess I would I benefited from growing up middle class in the United States. And uh, at a time in the 60s and 70s when uh, people uh, had a lot of opportunities, particularly people, uh, you know, of my of my background. And so um, that was a def- definite benefit for me. And I, I kind of alluded at the beginning of our discussion here to the to the various different topics I, I kind of dabbled in at the university. Right. French anthropology, astronomy. And uh, because I was middle class and because it wasn't such a pressure environment at that, you know, at that time to um, to get your degree and get a good paying job, you know, you could kind of experiment at university, which was very beneficial for me because it allowed me to to to, you know, uh, check out lots of different things before I finally found the thing that I really had a passion for. Um, I think today it it maybe is not so easy for younger people because there's a lot of pressure to get into a program and complete it and and get uh, get on your career path, so um, you know as quickly as you can. So yeah, those are you know that those are definitely opportunities that I greatly appreciate having had uh, when I was younger, and uh, you know I certainly acknowledge those uh, those opportunities as as uh, helping me along the way. Interesting. Although it sounds like you've taken um, all those advantages and privileges that you grew up with, and you're now turning them around and using them to help uh, other communities. You mentioned that you're working with that Inuit community up north uh, to try and establish that new museum. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, whenever, whenever we go into the wilderness in Canada... Um, th- we're, we're dealing uh, with, uh, you know, 
First Nations communities at, at, at some level. I mean, there's certainly somebody who's interested in a, a First Nations group that's interested in pretty much anywhere you're going to go in Canada um, because of their longevity on the land. And and whenever whenever I undertake a research program in a new area, the first step along the way is to get to become familiar, get to be familiar with the local communities and uh, explain what I want to do and, and, you know, make sure that that they would be on board with that and uh, and supportive. And one of the great benefits, I think, of my job is is to be able to go into a place like, like Violet Island and that community there and, and hire people to uh, help as uh, assistants. Uh, they'd be uh, uh, geological assistants and or also wildlife monitors. And, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity to interact with, with these people and and to learn about their culture and to share knowledge and information. So, uh, you know, I, I've got one fellow that I worked with out of Pond Inlet, Jomi Inugu, and he contributed so much to our geological programs that I've put him on as a co-author for our geological maps. And, uh, uh, you know, it's it's great because he, he provided me information about the local topography, the names of topographic features and geographic features on Violet Island, and we've used these names to uh, in in naming the rocks that we find there, so it's a very uh, you know give and take relationship, both sides uh, giving to the other, and and it's always been it's certainly been a lot of a great pleasure to me to be able to uh, to interact with that with that community, and I really hope we get this uh, this funding for for a, a museum exhibit because the local people are really excited about it, and it's great to uh, you know to talk with them and explain. Uh, the meaning of these fossils and uh, how they help us understand the ancient history of the landscape because they're living right on this landscape all year round and uh, they uh, they understand how it changes on a daily basis and they're very keen to understand how it changes on a millennial basis as well. Excellent. Uh, yeah, that's a recent trend that I'm noticing with uh, science and especially geoscience uh, where they're incorporating uh, local peoples in the research being done. And I'm all for it. Oh, for sure, for sure. And uh, you know, another uh, another example of that. Um, uh, a few years ago, when I was working up there, I, I tried. I was trying to track down uh, the location of uh, some fossil forests, and uh, there were logs up there, right? That we knew had been. This had been reported in uh, some of the early records of the seafaring expeditions that uh, were undertaken in the early 1900s. Uh, late 1800s, looking for the Northwest Passage, and uh, so several several of these uh, uh, mariners had had made notations about finding fossil logs, and um, these were the first descriptions, actually, of of fossil forest remains in the Arctic. And so I, I was uh, trying to you know trying to figure out exactly where this one reference. Uh, was referring to fossil uh, logs on on Violet Island, and uh, so I asked my my colleague Jomi, and he said, "Well, I think if we go up on top of that plateau, we may find something up there." And so we took the helicopter up there, and sure enough, you know, he was able to point us to where these fossil logs uh, were preserved in in the sedimentary rocks. So you know, great local knowledge that uh, that I was able to benefit from. And the science was able to benefit from. <laughs> you really are quite the detective. 
you're referencing sources from 19th century Northwest Passage expeditions to uh, traditional Inuit knowledge and then your own uh, scientific observations. It's really quite uh, the holistic picture. <laughs> well, that's one thing about paleontology is that we, uh, we have a very rich literature of uh, paleontological data and geological data that stretches back several hundred years and uh, uh, you know n all of that literature still has value today so it's uh, it's important to be able to uh, ac access that literature and you know use it to help you track down uh, new details uh, that you can that you can unravel today so uh, yeah the integration of the ancient literature and uh, the traditional knowledge of the uh, the Inuit, um, you know, with scientific inquiry, is a, it's a great and pleasurable experience to to be able to pull all that together. You seem really eager and open to share your knowledge and your stories. Um, I'm curious. Do you feel like paleontology as a field uh, is uh, takes a similar approach and is like that, or is it a little more uh, insular? No, I think paleontology is very uh, very open to the public. I mean, look at look at how interested uh the general population is uh in with respect to paleontology like little kids grow up knowing every detail about dinosaurs right and uh, much more than i could ever know and uh um uh even their parents quite often will uh, will have a, a strong interest in fossils look at in the you know in the globe and mail or the national post every month there's another article about new fossil finds right in some part of the world and, and what the implications are and uh, uh, so we we see this all the time in um, in science magazines and and journals and in our normal our normal life. So I think people have a very very strong appreciation for paleontology. I think they, it's the the connection with the the primeval world, right? That the fossils um, bring to us. That uh, here is a connection to the ancient past of 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 our planet that uh, is real and tangible. Um, so the, the general population, uh, can, can be very open to paleontology. Cer certainly paleontologists themselves can be, uh, can be very insular and, uh, and very, uh, very, as I, as I alluded to earlier, you know, turf wars are very common and, uh, even today. Um, and so, uh, you know, you have to, fortunately in Canada, there's so many places that are unexplored that it's easy to go find you know places that no one is working in, and uh, and and be able to make contributions. That's one of the uh, things I find I have have found so appealing about working in Canada over the past thirty years is you know the the sense that it's a wide open field and there's plenty of uh, terrain to go check check for new discoveries in. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, speaking of which, I'm curious, what's your favorite discovery that you've made? Uh, well, I. I you know, I have to say, probably it would be that plesiosaur fossil, the big marine reptile on Violet Island, and uh, I ha I say that because it's uh, it's you know I'm not a dinosaur person, I'm not a, a marine reptile person, I'm a I study the ammonites, which are you know the, the they lived in the ocean at the same time as the marine reptiles, but they're they're more like clams and snails and. Uh, uh, the mollusks that lived in the in the waters and and on the bottom of the sea, and so um, it was pretty exciting when I actually found my own dinosaur, if you will. I mean, I, you call it a dinosaur, recognizing fully that it's not; it's a marine reptile. But you know, it's the same type of giant vertebrate that uh, that lived on the earth at that time 
in Earth's history, and, and it lived in the ocean. So that was pretty exciting to find that uh, up there at such high latitude. This was the, the most northerly plesiosaur that's ever been found anywhere. So, uh, you know, it, it, it definitely had a significant cachet for me. So, um, that you know, that's that's one of my highlights, I guess. And it could be because it's a, just a few few years ago and pretty recent. But, uh, you know, there's been so many opportunities, Daniel, over the years when I have found just gorgeous fossils and, and uh, you know, working as a, a graduate student in Northern California and uh, going into areas uh, which, you know, nobody had studied geologically and finding just pristine ammonite fossils with all the iridescent um, aragonite shell just glistening in the sun and those are sitting there right on the side of a creek and all you got to do is reach down with your hammer and chisel and pop them out and they're in your hand you know and it's like wow this is just such a tremendous uh, tremendous moment here to be experiencing this linkage with the past you know so I, I I've got so many positive experiences over the course of my life it's really you know, it's just like a, a rainbow of uh, of great uh, great stories that all blend together. I know that many of the iconic ancient skeletons uh, have names. Are plesiosaurs named Dorothy? Are dinosaurs named George? Uh, what did you end up naming your plesiosaur? Well, that's a good that's a good that's a good question, Daniel. Maybe that's what we need to do to get some uh, to get some uh, support for funding. Right, is to give it a name. Um, but no, I've just been calling it the the great uh, violet plesiosaur fossil, and that that probably just sounds pretty bland to uh, to people with purse strings. So maybe what I need to do, do is to go up to Pond Inlet there and talk to some of my Inuit friends and say what what we need to name this fellow or maybe this lady and um, and uh, give it a great catchy title so that we can use that to uh, to attract funding. <laughs> That's the most important part, I think. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, without the funding, you you know, all the fieldwork stories never would happen. So, um, you know, it's uh, definitely uh, um, something that we have to be, you know, aware of and, and concerned with. Now, I'm curious, have you been able to get back up there with the pandemic raging or have you been able to do any fieldwork or research uh, during COVID? Well, yeah, it's been it has continued. Uh, fieldwork obviously has been put on hold and and uh, most fieldwork. Um so actually traveling to Nunavut uh, is is pretty much out of the question for anybody who's not a resident. So uh, that's been the case since um, early in the pandemic last year. And and when you're working in the Arctic, it's not a simple question or a simple manner of hopping on a plane and flying up there and saying, OK, where am I going to go and, and starting your work? You know, you have to plan this long ahead of time uh, and and your applications for support like helicopter support and whatnot and permits basically all have to be submitted in uh in the fall uh like october uh before the year that you want to do field work in the summer so um there were a lot a lot of people who uh lost field seasons last year in 2020 because you know they had planned in 2019 they put together their plan and got their funding in place to do the field work so that was all uh kind of uh, postponed last year and we're still not uh, back to uh, implementing those plans. Uh, my own work was kind of on hiatus because I'd done a number of field seasons in 27 and 18 and and uh, and a little bit in 19 and so I had done all the field work for my, my work up there with the exception of taking this fossil beast out of the rock if I could get the opportunity 
and uh, so it didn't really impact me too much. But uh, but certainly any field work on Vancouver Island has been put on hold. Um, now, having said that, you know, as scientists, uh, a lot of our job is writing scientific papers. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the pandemic has provided us with a lot of, of time, I should say, I should say more time to, uh, to address our scientific research and write up the results. And so um, that's, that's a benefit, actually. Um, but it is, you know, it is done at home and it's kind of done in isolation from others. And so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a challenge because we miss the interaction with our colleagues in the office. And, you know, there's nothing, you know, nothing uh, beats kind of going, coming up with a question and then going down the hall to your colleague and, you know, asking her, what do you think about this geological problem? And then you get an answer and you get a good discussion going. And all that kind of uh, interaction has, uh, has been modified to a great extent. I mean, you can still do that somewhat by Zoom, but, but it's not nearly the same as uh, being able to just walk down the hall and uh, with a cup of coffee and then start chatting with somebody. So, yeah, it's definitely impacted uh, impacted the way we do our work, but uh, but not in a serious serious way. I've still been able to get a number of, of scientific papers uh, submitted and um, and working on maps, etc. Just doing it all from home. But I'm really looking forward to getting back in the field. I'll tell you. <laughs> you sound like I was at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I had a whole laundry list of things that I'd get done, except that you actually managed to finish off your laundry list. <laughs> Well, I got some stuff done, Daniel. I, I got some stuff done. You know, we've had we've had to deal with uh, reopening the office. You know, and and uh, believe it or not, we've been trying to hire people, and there's all sorts of demands from from Ottawa because I work with the federal fed, for the federal government for uh, you know some sort of plan to do this or another plan to do that, and and uh, yeah, it takes up a lot of time, but but uh, we do the best we can, and you know we celebrate the. The victories when they come, like sending, submitting a, a, a new paper, a new manuscript for publication, it's a really uh, a positive experience and, uh, you know, accounts for a lot. Wonderful. Uh, now, you've painted a really interesting picture of uh, what you, you do in your day-to-day -day work. Um, I'm curious, what advice do you have for anyone who's listening right now who might want to follow in your footsteps? Yeah, for sure. Well, it, I would say uh, definitely you have to you know understand basic geological principles, uh, have a good understanding of Earth history uh, and uh, the nature of biological evolution. Uh, this is to become a paleontologist, uh, by the way. Um, and so, uh, you know, if the, as much as you could blend a geological uh, uh, degree and a biological degree, that that basically. Um, uh, is what a paleontological research uh, experience would 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 require. So, like my my initial my undergraduate degree was in was in geology, and uh, I didn't specialize in the paleontology until I went to graduate school. So, you know, you have a lot of opportunity to take to take different courses, but but definitely geology pro will put the fossils into their earth history context, and uh, and will help you understand. Uh, how fossils from particular stratum or different rock layers relate to fossils from other rock layers, which may be older or younger. So that's a that's a critical component there. Um, then field work and and being outdoors. Uh, you know, it's it's amazing how much 
of the of the physical landscape of being outdoors, you can understand when you've had some geological good geological training. And conversely, you understand geological principles much better when you have seen them actually exhibited to you in the field. So, you know, I think anybody who's who does who loves to hike uh, or be outdoors and uh, climb mountains or whatever, uh, you know, this is these are the kinds of uh, activities I think that kind of bring you close to to geology and and close to the. Uh, uh, the natural history of that that you're going to be studying as a as a paleontologist. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a difficult road, and I'm not trying to make it easy, sound easy. I mean, I had courses when I was an undergraduate uh, that uh, you know challenged me, and uh, you know I didn't do the best in those courses, but fortunately I did well in the courses that were critical, and I was able to express my interest uh, to the right people when 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 the times came and and uh you know that's what counted more than the grades ultimately so um it's a it's a long process but the rewards at the end are 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 really uh, f fantastic and uh you know you, you i can't I can't encourage people enough to uh, pursue uh this this science i'm sure it helps that when it gets to be too much uh you can go camping for the weekend and call that your homework <laughs> that's right that's right you know, it's, it turns out. I mean, whenever, whenever uh, I, I go for a, a quote a weekend of camping um, with my wife or friends or something like that, inevitably I start looking at the rocks, right? <laughs> and uh, oh, look, look what's over here. You know, oh man, here's a fossil over here, right? So I, I, I just can't keep my, uh, keep my eyes off them, I guess. But, uh, but uh, you know, it's I, I like to think that uh, I'm trying to balance. Uh, my uh, social uh, and home life uh, sufficiently with the with the work life. And you sound pretty inspired by the rocks themselves. Uh, but I'm curious, did anyone inspire you while you were starting off your career or while you were studying? Well, yeah, I mean, I certainly have to say that uh, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I took a, you know, I, I, I referred to that history of life course. And and that was taught to me by a professor who his name was Carl Flessa. He, I think he's, I think he's an emeritus professor at University of Arizona now. But he uh, he had a different approach to uh, to teaching, and uh, at that time, and this is in the 1970s, and uh, uh, it was a very. I just thought it was his courses were fascinating, and and we did so much uh, field based studies. Uh, on the weekends that would complement the uh, the coursework that we learned during the week and and so that was really an inspiration for me. I suspect if i hadn 't had that course and that particular professor who provided me with guidance, I may not have uh, you know followed the career path that I, I eventually chose um, and then of course when i when I went to Ottawa and I worked with uh, uh, this fellow I referred to George Jeletsky. Um, he was my predecessor, and he was uh, pretty old at that time. And he he died when I was uh, there, living in Ottawa, and he passed away. and And so we got to spend a few years working together. And uh, he he really uh, opened my eyes to the to the complexity of uh, some fossil groups and 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 the methodology by which. Uh, we need to study some fossil uh, assemblages and and different fossil groups, 
And uh, he was a Russian fellow, uh, came over from the Soviet Union at the end of World War II uh, with his family. So he had experienced a lot of hardship uh, in his life. I mean, serious, serious hardship. And uh, it was just so inspirational to talk with him um, and, you know, and get his advice on on uh, on how to tackle problems. And then, of course, we would uh, sh uh, shoot shots of vodka uh, on, the <laughs> on the weekends at his house. And uh, I have to say he was 40 years my my senior, but he could uh, he could really pound down those shots of vodka. So put, drank me under the table. <laughs> Wonderful. I've heard that's another big part of fieldwork sometimes. That's true. That's true. I'd like to point out for our audience here that uh, uh, geologists consume more beer than any other professional group. <laughs> another reason to go into geology. Another reason, yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> now, Jim, you mentioned earlier that retirement could be around the corner or possibly not. Uh, so I'm curious, looking to the long term, what would you like to be your legacy when you do finally retire? Uh, or what would you like to be written on your uh, career's tombstone? Oh, boy. That um, maybe something like, here lies Jim with his fossils. Something like that, maybe. <laughs> I hadn't actually thought of that, but maybe that's a good line. I have to think about it. Um, well, as far as my legacy goes, my scientific legacy, I... I, uh, I'm, I'm very happy with uh, what I'm working on in the Arctic as a contribution. I think it's going to be a really uh, nice summary of the geology of that corner of Canada. And, uh, but more importantly, I think, is the, uh, the work that I'm, I'm focused on on the West Coast, uh, which is trying to in, improve the, the, the fossil timescale for, uh, for Canada and globally. Um, you know, I mentioned that, you know, we have these fossils here and figuring out the order that they occur in and how they can be used uh, as time indicators, timelines, if you will. It's very important to help uh, in produce our geological maps here in Canada, but it's also very important to help with correlation of rocks all around the globe. And uh, so when, when, uh, when you make these... Uh, you establish these uh, fossil relationships and you know how they can be used to to help you uh, uh, interact with your colleagues who are working in Sakhalin, Russia or Japan or in uh, England or Northwest Germany. You know, it's it's a really um, it's a really satisfying feeling. So having that that chronology Un, uh, under my belt would be a really satisfying uh, career-ending uh, achievement. Um, the only problem, Daniel, is that there's always room to improve it. And so, you know, the story never ends. And therefore, you keep working, right? <laughs> That's quite the ambitious goal. Uh, it sounds like you want to write the history of the world. <laughs> I had never thought of it that way, for sure. But that's one way to put it. At least the North Pacific. Now, in the same vein, um, I'm curious. The world is constantly changing, and scientific fields, uh, professional fields, are very, very different. Uh, the field that a person goes into uh, may be completely different when they retire. So uh, where do you see paleontology going in the future? And do you have any advice for young people listening to this so that they can anticipate some of those changes? Yeah, that's a really good question, because obviously we, uh, you know, we're, we're, Technology is just exploding around us, and uh, all the time there's new uh, methodologies of uh, of dealing with uh, with scientific data. And uh, but I do have to caution uh, 
uh, young people to not become too enamored with the technology. It, it's, um, it is uh, very tempting to, uh, to take a new technology and then try and adapt it to, uh, to resolving a geological problem, and, and that can be very successful in some cases. Um, but sometimes if you uh, take a new technology and you f just say, well, we're going to apply it uh, to, to, to look at this, uh, these, these rocks or these fossils uh, without understanding the full ramifications of, of how that might play out, uh, it can give you a, it can lull you into a false sense of, uh, of uh, understanding about, about the results you come up with. And paleontology is a very um, uh, challenging discipline. It's very rewarding and very exciting, intellectually rewarding. But it is very challenging because in many cases uh, these fossils are not uh, they're not always perfect. In fact, they're very frequently imperfect and 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 mostly imperfect. And so, uh, you know, the idea that uh, perhaps you all you have to do is take a picture of a fossil, and then the computer will, you know, process that picture and tell you what it is, or even a series of pictures. I mean, it sounds really um, uh, uh, enticing on a on a conceptual. Uh, level uh, and I've tried this myself but the reality is there's so many things that go into defining paleontological species that it's really really problematic to try and uh, reduce those to a, a set number of parameters that you can identify uh, by, by taking a picture for instance so um, you know what I what I would caution people is to uh, yes be aware of the the possibilities of technology but don't overlet, don't ever let the technology override your common sense, uh, and and you know become an expert in the field that you choose, the field of fossils you choose, not based on the technology that's available, but based on your love of the fossils, because understanding the fossils and uh, and how the you know populations of of different species vary. Uh, within themselves is much more important than being able to take the technology and and describe that assemblage of fossils. So it's um, it's I guess the the critical thing here is uh, to uh, always uh, treat your your rock data as sacrosanct, and that's the most important thing that we need to focus on are are the fossils themselves and not the technology. And the technology is just a tool to help you describe things. I absolutely agree. Although you are talking to a Luddite here, um, I find that whenever new technology comes out, I always wait a little bit and let other people figure out how it works before I dive in. Well, that's the way. I, that's certainly the way I feel about it. Uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, certainly the technology has its values. I mean, look at look at this conversation we're having right now. Um, and uh, uh, you know, it's impossible to do this even a few years ago. So. Uh, um, you know, it, there's certainly uh, many, many opportunities that the technology provides and, uh, uh, you know, essentially recording data and accumulating data and being able to massage big data sets is extremely useful and, and enabled by the paleontology. But uh, again, quite often, as we've seen here in our organization, uh, you put bad data into a, a database and then you start making assumptions or uh, from the analysis of that database. 
and uh, and you're going to be way off in uh, in the reality. So, um, you know, never never uh, make assumptions about the quality of the data that are going into your computer. Just like I, the story I mentioned earlier about you know never make assumptions about the uh, the coordinate data that your helicopter pilot gives you because he was he was dialed into a different coordinate system, and uh, than the one we were using. So. Um, you know, you just have to, you just have to kind of keep your eye on the ball and, uh, and, and be aware of the big picture details and always trust what you find in the field over what comes out of the computer. I think that's a perfect wrap up for the interview, Jim. Thank you. Uh, those are all the questions I have for today. Is there anything you want to say before I let you go? Well, no, just that I really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you. And, uh, I hope, you know, if any, if any, young people are, are motivated from what we've talked about to uh, to get, pursue a, the field of paleontology. I strongly encourage and I'm, I'm happy to uh, to chat with anybody and in and, and more detail about, you know, opportunities or, or career objectives and things like that. Uh, it's uh, I'm always available for that. They can they can get in touch with me through you, I guess, or or uh, or other ways. And uh, sure, uh, just uh, uh, enjoy what you're going to do and uh, make sure you enjoy what you're going to do. And uh, if, if you find a topic that really impassions you, then you know you're going to have a, uh, a lifetime career of satisfaction. Well, I think that's great advice. Uh, Jim, thanks for sitting down with me today to share your stories, your passion, your wisdom. Um, and I hope you get a name for that plesiosaur. Okay, <laughs> maybe we'll call him Big Daniel. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.